Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. If you've been with us from the beginning of our study in Revelation, one thing that you have heard me speak often of is God's coming judgment. But we are at the end of the wrath of God as God comes to right the wrongs, restore his peace, build his kingdom, and usher in his rule over earth. But before his kingdom comes his wrath. Join me this morning in Revelation chapter 16. It was the first Friday of 1982 when Kevin Tunnell was driving while drunk. He was just 17 years old at the time. And the young lady that he hit was only 18 years old when she was hit and killed. Now, Kevin was convicted of manslaughter. He served a court sentence. And the family of the young woman that he killed sued him for $1.5 million. But they settled, not for $1 million, not even for half a million. They settled for $936 with the agreement that it be paid $1 at a time. The family wanted the payment to continue for 18 years because that was the age of their daughter when her life was snuffed out. And they expected $1 to be paid every single Friday so Kevin wouldn't forget that he killed her on the first Friday of 1982. They wanted him specifically court-ordered to put a check in the mail every week. But he kept forgetting to send in that $1 bill. They had to take him to court four different times for failing to comply to send in this dollar. And even he even spent 30 days in, in jail for failing to pay. And he insisted that he was not trying to defy this court order, but he was haunted. He was haunted by the girl's death and tormented by the reminders. So he offered. He offered the family to write out the checks in advance, but the family refused. They didn't want that because it was not the money they sought, but they sought justice. Now, few would question the anger of this family because the guilty must be punished. But it leaves me with a question. Are 936 payments enough? Was the family finally at peace when they got that final payment after 18 years? Was that enough remorse? How much should it be? If it was your family, if that was your child, how many payments would you demand? No one makes it through life without getting hurt. Someone at some point in time has hurt you, but you are not alone. How much is a human life worth? Does $90 seem like a lot of money? $90 might be able to buy you a nice meal for you and your spouse, but then again, $90 could be the value of your entire life. You see, the average cost worldwide of a trafficked human being is just $90. Often it's much more. Children in the United Kingdom, they go for $25,000, but a girl from India is only worth $24. And a girl from Mozambique, their life is only worth $2. If you think human slavery is only a thing of the past, here's something to think about. In 1860, there was 25 million slaves in the world. Today, there's 27 million. 
1860, the median price per slave was $134. Today, the median price per slave is just $140. And today, the average lifetime of a slave is only six years, after which they escape or set free or die. See, I hate the depravity of man. I hate what sin does. Every year in this world, 5,000 women and girls are murdered in honor killings every single year by family members who feel disgraced because a sister or daughter has seemed to act immodestly or because they've fallen in love with the wrong guy or because they've been defiled, even defiled by rape. Sometimes they're killed for that in an honor killing. Every year, millions of girls in the developing world, about one in seven, are forced into a marriage before the age of 15. And if you're thinking to yourself that this is just something that happens overseas, you're wrong. Consider just the following headlines from the United States. And I just grabbed a few, just a few. I could have grabbed endless headlines, but here's just a few. Northern California teens sold for sex. Federal authorities from Memphis honored for breaking up child sex trafficking ring. Fort Myers, Florida woman accused of using children as prostitutes. Northern Alabama man convicted in sex trafficking of an underage girl. Somali sex trafficking ring in Tennessee. Mississippi man pleads guilty to sex trafficking. And another headline, sex trafficking in the U.S. called epidemic. And Super Bowl is single largest human trafficking incident in the United States. See, the biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of, of God as the good, wise, and loving creator who hates anything that distorts or damages his beautiful creation. In particular, anything that violates those he has chosen to make in his image. If God does not hate racial injustice, he's neither good nor loving. And if God is not angry at child abuse, he is neither good nor loving. And if God is not utterly determined to root out of his creation the arrogance that allows people to enslave one another, he is neither good, loving, nor wise. But after almost 100 years of weak preaching from America's pulpits today, the average man believes that God is all just sweetness and light, sunshine and roses. That God would not discipline his own people or that God would not punish unbelievers. Revelation tells us a different story, a different picture. And Revelation is a dark picture. I'm not going to lie to you. It's a dark picture. And it confronts us with the wrath of a holy and just God in heaven. And it confronts us with a holy God who is inflicting his justice against the unjust in a world that has been ruined by man and ruled by Satan. Revelation 16 is covering the final seven bold judgments of God. And we start in verse 1. It says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Now, the first bold judgment is not inflicted on the earth itself, but instead specifically on who? On men. On men. These are the last seven judgments of the tribulation, and they will come in quick succession, one right after another. They're going to be poured out one after another. And they illustrate, they illustrate the nature of God's judgment on sin. And they show us what it looks like 
when a holy God takes out his justice on a vile world that hates him. John heard a loud voice come from the temple in heaven, it says. The voice of God, because the text has told us that only God was able to enter the temple until these plagues were completed. And the seven angels were instructed, go and pour out these bowls of the wrath of God on earth. One after another, pour them out. And the angels, what do they do? They obey instantly. There's no hesitation on their part. They're obeying instantly. And the first angel went and poured out his bowl upon the earth. And look at what it says here. It says, a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These are the very last days of the seven-year tribulation. And this bowl judgment is poured out on those who worship the Antichrist by accepting his mark, by bowing down before his image. And they're going to break out with painful sores, foul sores here, meaning harsh, harsh, difficult, dangerous. These are the people who will think that they bought their families a little more time by keeping them safe, by taking the mark of the beast. They compromised, but it only buys them a few years. And when that time is up, it will cost them all eternity. Now, some think, and it's an interesting thought, some think that this sore could be directly related to the mark of the beast. Could it be? Could it be that the marks they receive on the forehead or on the right hand turn into some sort of putrefying sore? Men horrible to look upon, pain that never ends. But I want you to notice that those who receive Christ in the tribulation are immune. Those who receive the mark of the beast are inflicted by the wrath of God. Those who don't receive the mark are not inflicted by the wrath of God with these sores. It's actually the same kind of thing that happened to the ancient Egyptians who enslaved God's people for hundreds of years. God paid them back with ten plagues. Exodus 9, if you remember from your Old Testament studies, Exodus 9 describes the sixth plague, where it says Moses and Aaron, what did they do? They took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses scattered them toward heaven, and they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and on all the Egyptians. And then verse 3 in Revelation, it continues. It says, Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Now just by reading the text, just by reading the Bible, you should be able to see the severity of God's coming judgment. When we looked at the second trumpet judgment in Revelation 8, there the sea becomes blood, and one-third of all the sea creatures died. But here, what does it tell us? It says every living creature in the sea died. It says specifically it became blood as of a dead man. The blood of a dead man is thick. It's clotted. It's, it's thick. And so the image given is of this thick, rotted blood. Nothing will survive. You know, if you think of the oceans right now, they're teeming with life. There's life everywhere underneath the surface of the water. But the sea will become a grave of death. You know, off the coast of Florida and California and other places around the world, there's, a, there's something known as the red tide. And these red tides, they, they come in and they kill millions of fish and poison those who eat the contaminated shellfish. 
1949, one of these red tides hit the coast of Florida. And first, at first, the water turned kind of yellow, but by midsummer, it was thick, and it was starting to thicken up with countless billions of dinoflagellates, which are basically just tiny, small, one-cell microorganisms. And 60 miles of stinking fish filled up the beaches. Much of the marine life was just completely wiped out. Even the bait used by fishermen died on the hooks. Even the bait died. Eating fish contaminated by the tide produced severe symptoms caused by a potent nerve poison. Now, if unchecked, a population explosion of these toxic dinoflagellates would kill all the fish at sea. Now, I don't believe for a second that this fully explains what the world is going to see in Revelation 16. I don't. But I do think this, it certainly illustrates it pretty good. The disaster described in Revelation 16 is not as hard to believe as some people today would have you think. Now, when John thought of the sea, what did he think of? John would have thought of the Mediterranean Sea. But here the language in Revelation 16 goes beyond just the Mediterranean Sea and extends to the oceans of the world. And these bold judgments are much like the seven trumpet judgments, but much more severe. And back in Genesis 1.21, the Bible teaches this. It says, God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves and with the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was what? Good. And the day is coming when God is going to take away all the life of the sea creatures. This will be a complete and utter destruction of all marine life. I was reading about Janine Brooks. She was a dental student. I like this girl. She was a dental student. When a man ran into her car and drove away, and having the car fixed put a severe strain on her student income, she managed to survive, and she managed to finish school. And the man, of course, never returned. That's how these things go. He never returned to pay for the damages or even to apologize to her. Well, 10 years later, Janine Brooks, the former student, was now a dentist. And guess who came into her office needing his tooth pulled? He didn't recognize her, but she recognized him. She told him it wouldn't hurt. She lied. Don't ever let anyone tell you that God's judgment won't hurt. It's going to hurt this world. Don't believe it for a second because God's coming judgment is severe. It's going to be painful, but it fits the crime of humanity. It is exactly right and just. Verse 4. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. That's all the drinking water. If you're tracking with me, that's all the drinking water. All the seawater turned to blood. Now the fresh water turns to blood. In chapter 8, it was only one-third of the waters that were affected, but now all the water on the earth is rendered useless to man. All the rivers, all the springs, lakes become blood in this plague. If this is literal water, it would seem that we should also see this as literal blood. But people cannot exist for long without water to drink. But even in the midst of the awful judgment of God, John tells us that the third angel, the angel of the waters, he gives us a brief doxology to set the record straight about who God is and what his judgment is here for. 
Let's read it, starting in verse 5. It says, And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. I want you to key in on that last sentence. Notice it. For it is their just due. Let's say it like this. It is what they are worthy of. In other words, let's say it like this. The punishment fits the crime. They shed blood, so they are made to drink blood. It is only right, is what God is saying. And even the martyred believers agree, which is what we see in verse 7. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The altar is a reference to those under the altar back in Revelation 6, 9. That's where the Bible told us in Revelation 6, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. These are the tribulation saints killed just because of the faith that they had in Jesus Christ. And so back in chapter 16, we see them agree. God's judgments are true and righteous. God's punishment is exactly what it needs to be. If you remember in Exodus, Pharaoh ordered that all Jewish male babies be drowned. In the end, Pharaoh and his army drowned in the Red Sea. Then you go to the book of Esther, and you look at Esther, and Haman, he built gallows to hang Mordecai. What happened to him? In the end, they hang Haman himself on those same gallows. Here in Revelation, godless people, godless people will shed the blood of believers, and in the end, it is those who shed blood that are forced to drink it. God's judgments are perfectly just. They're exactly right. In 2019, the Dutch defense launched an investigation of an F-16 fighter. This F-16, it suffered damage from 20-millimeter cannon fire during a routine training exercise. Now, this isn't supposed to happen. You're not supposed to have this kind of a problem when you're training. Here was the problem. The damage came from its own cannons. Well, see, the aircraft is equipped with a Vulcan Gatling gun, and these things are awesome to watch. They are pretty cool to watch. And these Gatling guns can fire over 6,000 rounds a minute. Those rounds travel at a muzzle velocity of 3,450 feet per second. But you see, as they come out of the aircraft, they can slow down kind of quickly because of all the drag of the air passing through around it. They think this is what happened. After a burst of these rounds were fired from the aircraft, the pilot accelerated. He sped up. He put on the afterburner and collided with those rounds while still in midair. And at least one struck the side of the F-16's fuselage. You can see it there in the photo. And parts of a round were ingested by the aircraft's engine. And you know, it highlights a principle that we see in the Word of God, that we often reap what we sow. And it's the way that God works in judgment. He gives people a taste of their own medicine, which is why the Bible says in Numbers 32, 23, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. No one gets away with their sin. 
You can't hide from God. You can't hide your sin from God. It may take time for the crop to ripen, but everybody reaps exactly what they sow. For God's people, for believers, positionally in Christ, it means we reap the consequences of our sin here and now. There's still consequences for when we sin. If I say something foolish to my wife, there's still consequences in our marriage, right? If I do something foolish in my life, there's still consequences for it. And it also means we lose rewards in his coming kingdom. It means we lose out on the beauty of growing in the grace of God. And for those without faith, it means that they stand condemned already. Why? Because they do not believe Jesus is the Christ. And for those alive in the tribulation, persecuting the saints of God, just like an F-16 hitting its own gunfire, they're going to be hit with their just due. But God's judgment also hardens people. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. It says, Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. Now the Greek has a definite article before men in verse 9, telling us that the men that are burned are those with the mark of the beast. Those that belong to God will escape this judgment. But for those who worship the Antichrist, God's judgment confirms them in their sin and solidifies them in their unbelief. See, instead of turning to God and begging for mercy, they do what? They curse his name. The fresh water of the earth will be turned to blood, nothing to quench the thirst of men. And the fourth angel pours out his bowl on the sun, causing it to scorch men with fire. Now it could be, and I'm just supposing, it could be that by the end of the tribulation, the atmosphere might be so damaged by this point that there's little left to protect the earth from the rays of the sun. It could be solar flares. Whatever it is, this angel will be given the power to carry it out. The people will be inflicted with sores, starving, thirsty, burning, scorched. But what won't they do? They won't cry out to God. Absolutely not. They will still curse their creator. They cannot argue the existence of God. Isn't that interesting in the text? They cannot argue against the existence of God, nor the power of God, but their hearts will be so hard that they will refuse, absolutely 100% refuse to give God the glory. And here comes the fifth angel in verse 10. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Verse 10 brings us with the fifth bold judgment, darkness. Darkness upon the kingdom of the beast and the people will be consumed by excruciating pain. The throne here is a reference to the center of the Antichrist's reign, the center of his rule. His kingdom will experience darkness like never before. To a lesser degree, this happened in Egypt long ago. Do you remember Exodus 10? It describes it this way with what happened in Egypt. It says there in Exodus 10, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. That's dark. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt, 
three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Do you see the contrast between God's people and the people of Egypt? But notice back in verse 11 of Revelation 16, their sores are still there. The pain is still there. The suffering is still there. The darkness is going to close in all around them. No water, scorched by the sun. But what? They still did not repent of their deeds. Boy, I hope you can see the depravity of of man gnawing their tongues in pain. They will refuse to believe that their own sin and rejection of God brought them there. Their sin, their pain is self-inflicted. And the scriptures teach plainly that these wicked men will not repent when warned of judgment. Nothing will cause them to seek him. Nothing will melt their hard hearts. Not even the fierce heat of God's almighty wrath. It reminds me so much of the generation in the days of Noah. Genesis 6, 5, it tells us, And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, kind of like today, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It happened to Pharaoh in Egypt. God sent ten plagues on his land, and with each plague, Pharaoh hardened his heart more and more. God's judgment never caused him to repent. Instead, it just hardened his heart to the point where he was in his unbelief. Even after God killed his firstborn son, and all the firstborn sons in Egypt, his heart was still hardened. Pharaoh went up after the children of Israel and ended up drowning in the Red Sea. Because, hear the principle, if people are not won by grace, they'll never be won. If they're not won by grace, they'll never be won. Verse 12, it takes us to the sixth bowl of wrath when the stage is set for the battle of Armageddon. It says in verse 12, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. At the end of the seven-year tribulation, whatever is going to be left of the military forces of the world will gather for a war. So if you tell people that at this church, we don't talk about the battle of Armageddon, tell them you talk about the war, because in Scripture it's actually called a war, and it's Armageddon is the Greek term. This is where the forces of the Antichrist are destroyed by Christ and his armies from heaven. That's us, guys. Euphrates River was one of the four rivers, some of you remember this from your Old Testament studies, that irrigated the Garden of Eden. The Hebrew people called it the river or the great river. But this river, it's going to dry up, making a way for the kings from the east. Now, it's possible, it's very possible that the armies will no longer be able to be transported by the seas because the oceans, why? The oceans have turned to this thickened blood. You can't get troop transports across the seas at that point. And the Euphrates River was the eastern boundary of the old Roman Empire. It still is that dividing line between the east and the west. It is the prophesied eastern boundary of the land which God promised to the seed of Abraham. 
But this barrier is going to be removed. And the nations of the east, you can see it there, will invade the west. They'll be drawn out by demonic forces when the man of sin sees that this 1,800-mile-long river stretching from the mountains of Turkey down to the Persian Gulf is now dry. He will set out to secure the military might of the countries to the east, to the far east, to join him in battling the god of these plagues. So who are the kings of the east? That's a fascinating question. The wording helps us. The wording is literally of the sun rising, of the sun rising, referring to oriental rulers who will descend upon the Middle East. The rising powers in parts of the Orient today, countries like Japan, China, and India. And then verses 13 and 14 continue in our text and tell us, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And then skip down to verse 16 for just a second. It says, And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. These three verses are not that hard to understand. They're really not. Demonic spirits will gather the nations of the world together in a place called Armageddon. It's a vast plain in Israel. It's a vast plain in Israel, about 14 miles wide and 20 miles long. It is the place where three continents all come together, Africa, Asia, and Europe. It's the crossroads of the world. And the world rulers have fought over this piece of real estate for over 3,000 years. They've been fighting for this chunk of land for a long, long time, including Alexander the Great and Napoleon. Napoleon, he himself, he called it this, the most natural battlefield of the whole earth. In the Bible alone, we see many battles there. Go through the Old Testament once. We see in Judges 5 that Israel defeated the armies of Canaan there. Gideon was there. Gideon routed the Midianites in Judges 7 there. This is where King Saul lost his life. This is where King Josiah died, according to 2 Chronicles 35. Titus and the Roman army, they used this corridor, as did the Crusaders in the Middle Ages. General Allenby, the British military commander, he led the last cavalry charge of the First World War in this vast plain when he defeated the Ottoman Turks. They dominated the Middle East for 400 years, but they were forced to surrender it all after losing to the British at Armageddon. You can see why the world rulers would be attracted to this place. They're going to come together for war, incited by the forces of evil. And that's what verses 13 and 14 are telling us. That's what it's telling us in the text. Satan's forces will be bringing them together to fight each other and to fight Jesus Christ when he returns. But Christ, you see, Christ has them gathering for a different purpose, for a whole other purpose, for him to judge the nations. John saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs coming out of the mouth of Satan, the dragon, the beast, the antichrist, and the false prophet. Demons that will perform miraculous signs going throughout the world to influence kings to gather for that battle on that great day of God Almighty. Now, Satan, I want you to stop and let's think this through and let's work this through. Satan is going to know that the second coming of Christ is near. Satan is wise. 
He's going to know that the second coming of Christ is near. And he will want the military forces of the world to gather in the Holy Land to resist the coming of Christ to the Mount of Olives. But the nations are not going to be gathered for that purpose. They're going to be deceived, gathering for war to gain more power over one another. They will fight each other. And Satan's going to use it and use them to battle Christ. And as I was saying before, this in the text is very clear. This is not just a battle. The text talks about a war. This is not just a couple days. This is a war, including house-to-house fighting in Jerusalem, according to Zechariah 14. This war will come to a head at Christ's return. Author Philip Yancey, he wrote about playing chess, and he said in high school he took pride in his ability to play chess. He joined the chess club, and during lunch hour, he could be found sitting at a table studying books about chess. Who does that at lunch hour? Anybody want to admit it in public? I don't think so. Well, he would do that. He would do that. He would study the techniques. He said he won most of his matches, but he put aside the game for about 20 years. And then in Chicago, he met a truly fine chess player who had been perfecting his skills long since high school. And when they played a few matches, Philip said he learned what it was like to play against a master. Because any classic offense that Philip tried, he countered with a classic defense. If Philip tried anything a little more risky, the chess master incorporated this into his winning strategies. And then Philip said, although I had complete freedom to make any move that I wished, I soon reached the conclusion that none of my strategies mattered very much. His superior skill guaranteed that my purposes ended up serving his own. This is the way that God interacts with his own creation. He gives us the freedom to rebel against his will, but even as we do, we only end up serving his objectives. None of us can stop God, not even Satan himself. You know, Satan, he thought he was so smart. He thought he defeated Christ at the cross. But the cross was the very thing that God used to defeat Satan. That's why Colossians 2.15 says this, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. See, Satan couldn't stop God at Calvary, and he won't be able to stop God at Armageddon. Verse 17 tells us, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying what? It is done. A glorious day. It is done, or it has come to be, most likely the voice of God himself at this point, declaring from his temple in heaven, see, no matter what Satan may try, no matter what men may try, God's judgment will come to be. You can't stop it. It's more certain than tomorrow's sunrise. And then our last section of text for this morning, starting with verse 18. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, Such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away and the mountains were not found and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. 
That's what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation. In Zechariah 14, God says this. It says, For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split into from east to west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain shall move towards the north and half of it towards the south. You see, Satan will think he's gathering the nations to Israel, but he is just a pawn. He's just a pawn in God's hands to gather the nations there so that Christ can judge them at his second coming. When Christ comes, there will be an earthquake so severe it will split the mountains. It will destroy the cities around the world. It will submerge the islands of the world. And the great city of verse 19, it must be Jerusalem. Why do I say this? I say this because Revelation 11:8 already identified the great city as Jerusalem. This seems to be the most natural understanding of the text. But God's wrath will be poured out upon Babylon. Babylon, we will be talking about in the coming weeks a lot. Babylon will be destroyed. And for those who oppose Christ during the tribulation, it's going to be a terrible day. Each hailstone will weigh about a talent. How much is that? About 100 pounds. That's some serious hail coming down. The destruction is hard to imagine. But men are still going to do what? It says they're still going to blaspheme God. For those of us who trust Christ, it's going to be a great day because that is when Christ will take up his reign as king over the whole earth and we'll begin to rule and reign with him and it all comes down to whether or not you belong to Christ by faith. That's what it boils down to. For those living in the tribulation, Christ tells them back in verse 15. Remember, I skipped verse 15. Well, he tells them this. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. Verse 15 is actually the point of the whole chapter. To the tribulation saints, God is asking the question, are you ready? Are you ready for the coming of Christ? For the believer to not be prepared for the return of Christ will be to their shame, like standing before the presence of God naked. Others will see their shame because Christ wants believers from every age to be ready for his return, to hold tight to him, no matter how difficult it may be in the days ahead. Emmett Till, this is a name that I don't know how many of you know. His story had a profound impact on the civil rights in the United States. See, Emmett was just a 14-year-old black teenager from Chicago. And he visited his relatives in Mississippi in August of 1955. And he was just a kid. And he had a little bit of that mischievous attitude in him. And so on a dare, on a bet, Emmett spoke to a white woman in a local store. Well, you didn't do that in Mississippi back then. And Emmett said the words, bye, baby. That's all he said. Two words. Bye, baby, to the wife of the store owner. Well, two nights later at midnight... Two white men by the name of Roy Bryan and J.W. Millam came to the home where Emmett was staying. They took him away. They beat him beyond recognition. Then they shot him. Then they tied him with barbed wire. 
And then they tossed his body into the Tallahatchie River. That's what racism looks like. The two men were arrested before the body was even found. There was guilt that was obvious. Their guilt was not a serious question in anyone's mind. At the trial, the all-white, all-male jury deliberated for just over an hour. They returned a not guilty verdict, just like that. And only weeks after these men were acquitted, knowing that the way our laws work, they couldn't be tried again for their, their crime, they freely admitted in public their crime, their guilt. And after their trial, Emmett's mother, Mamie Bradley, said this, and I want you to listen. She said, two months ago, I had a nice apartment in Chicago. I had a good job. I had a son. When something happened to the Negroes in the South, I said, that's their business, not mine. Now I know how wrong I was. The murder of my son has shown me that what happens to any of us anywhere in the world had better be the business of us all. I don't believe for a minute from the scriptures because of my understanding of the word of God that I will be here on earth during the events of the tribulation. But it would be foolish for me to think that it's only the problem of the people living then. It better be our business. It better be our business because the spirit of the Antichrist is already here now. Which is why 1 John 4, 3 says, And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. See, our world is already filled with people and demonic forces who oppose Jesus Christ. You see this. You know this. But John said the test to know if someone is on the side of Jesus Christ is to ask the question, what does the person believe about Jesus the Christ? And a denial of the doctrine of Christ taught by the apostles and given to us in the word is a denial of the faith. It's a denial of the faith. Because all of the Christian faith, all of history, all of the Bible, and all of the future, it's all centered on him. It's all centered on Jesus Christ. And so, yes, Revelation 16 matters. It better matter to you. It should matter to you. It matters if you're of the faith. It matters if you care about Christ. And it matters if you care about your future with him. And it matters because it will be some of God's people who will suffer through this dark, horrible time. So, Lord, help us if we don't care. The day of God's justice is coming. Let this change your mindset. And let this calm our anger now and end our frustration at the injustice and corruption of this world. Sin's not going to go unnoticed. I believe the scripture. I believe the events of Revelation 16 will happen just as written down, just as told to us. And I believe that this inspires me to live for Christ now today. Because I know the day is coming when his rule will be absolute over the earth. His peace is going to reign and his justice will be without end. He's the same sovereign God from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22. So trust him, not just with the future, but trust him today. And may the Lord help us to live always ready for the time of his return. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, 
please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.